0: I don't assume that you're all believers. And if you're not a Christian, well, thank God that you're here. You're in a place where the Lord Jesus is regularly, weekly lifted up and set before sinners and saints alike. This is a good place for you to be in this church, in this congregation. If you're visiting for the first time, I hope you come back. We hear the best news that there is in the world. And we trust that uh, today, if you're not a Christian, that uh, uh, you will listen carefully and read carefully and pray fervently uh, that the Lord Jesus might be revealed to you, that you might come to know him whom to know is life eternal. And those of us who are Christians, may God be with us, and bless us and help us to grow together in the grace of Jesus. Let's pray for a moment. Our God and Father, we are so grateful that we may be here today. Uh, we're grateful for your providential care and control in our lives. And we know that it is in your providence that we are gathered here today uh, during times of grieving in this country. Uh, in a time and situation where these people have lost someone dear and someone treasured. But we are conscious that we are in the presence of the living God, in the presence of a king who cannot die. And so we commit our time to you, and we will fix our attention upon you, and we will pray, Almighty God, that you will be with us, that you will this day in this place cause your kingdom to grow, draw sinners to yourself, and help those of us who know the Lord Jesus to grow in our knowledge of him and in our devotion to him. And we pray for these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to draw your attention, please, to... uh, Lamentations chapter 3 and verses 22 to 24. Lamentations 3, 22 to 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I don't know if you've read Eli Wiesel's book, Night. If you haven't, I commend it to you. It's not a Christian book. But it's a weighty book. It's an affecting book. It's a book that should bring tears to your eyes. Wiesel, as a young man, finds himself in Auschwitz and he records his impressions and his conclusions. Let me read one of the most poignant sections of the book to you. He says this, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in the camp that turned my life into one long night seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. So now imagine someone standing up on that night in the presence of that young man and saying, Great is your faithfulness. O God, my Father. And you see, it's into that kind of situation that Jeremiah speaks. It's on that kind of night that he strives to shine the light of this affirmation. Great is your faithfulness. It's the destruction of Jerusalem. It's the devastation of that beloved city. The Babylonian hordes have come, and they've laid waste to everything precious. It's 587, and that which is dreaded has come upon them. And into that kind of experience, into that situation, Jeremiah speaks, and he shines the light of this text. And he says, great is the faithfulness of our God. Rembrandt uh, paints uh, a portrait of this situation. And in his painting, we see Jeremiah and he's sitting on a rock and he's forlorn. And to his left are the Holy Scriptures. And to the right, over his shoulder, is the raised city of Jerusalem. And the thousands being led captivity into Babylon. Babylon that's the situation and that's the grief and Jeremiah says great is the faithfulness of God the Holocaust is something extraordinary but so is this Walter Kaiser writes he says the situation uh, is not without many parallels that is the Holocaust, and this devastation. And he says, although six million deaths easily exceed all the deaths of 587, what shall we say about the loss of the messianic office in the exile of the Davidic king, Zedekiah? What shall we say about the loss of God's inheritance, his place of rest, namely the land of Israel? What shall we say about the charred ruins of the former dwelling of the glory of God? ruins which now stood hideously against the skyline of a mute witness in the absence of God from their midst. What shall we say about the passing away of almost every avenue for atonement and reconciliation and the worship of God? For gone were not only the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat and the Shekinah Glory, but gone also were the priests and the altar and the altar of incense, the candlestick, The table of the bread of presence, the festivals, the evening and morning sacrifices, and so much more. Had God totally forsaken his everlasting word of promise? And could he now give up on forever providing salvation not only for Israel, but for all the nations of the earth? And that's the day in which Jeremiah lives. Those are the days into which he speaks. Thomas Chisholm wrote, Great is thy faithfulness. We'll sing it later. And he wrote that not out of one particular spiritual experience, but upon a reflection of a lifetime of God's faithful provisions. But that phrase, which is so familiar to us, Great is thy faithfulness. This is a phrase formulated and formed in the furnace of extraordinary affliction. I'm going to think about this statement, this truth. And I want to set it before you under three headings. And we're going to speak, first of all, about the context of faithfulness and then the nature of it and then how we, we have to respond to it, you and I. So let me speak to you first then about the the context of faithfulness. Jeremiah makes this statement in a very particular context. It is, first of all, the context of personal suffering. I don't know if you're suffering today. To some degree, we're always suffering, aren't we? Perhaps these are days of particular suffering for you. It was so for Jeremiah. (coughs) Jeremiah. And when Jeremiah writes, he writes not out of an ivory tower. He writes not as a theological student at seminary, spared all the trials and tribulations of life, but he writes as someone, well, look at verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction. I have seen affliction. I am a troubled man. Sometimes you and I, we refuse to be comforted in our difficulties and our trials, we refuse to be comforted, and we would rather wallow than, than walk upright. And sometimes we try to wriggle out of the comfort by saying that the comfort spoken is spoken by someone who doesn't understand. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, and so that comfort doesn't apply to me because they haven't suffered as I have. When, when Jeremiah speaks words of comfort here, when he reminds us that even now, even in these days, God is faithful, you can't get away from that by saying, well, Jeremiah, you don't understand. No, he does. And in fact, he says, I have forgotten what happiness is. Maybe you and I have been there. Jeremiah has. He's forgotten, he says in verse 16, 17, I've forgotten what happiness is. That's how low things have come. That's how difficult these days are. Jeremiah speaks in a context of personal suffering. He also speaks in the context of overwhelming suffering. Sometimes, you see, the people of God are just overwhelmed with the suffering that comes their way. Just turn for a moment to Job. Job chapter 1 and verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robes and shaved his head and fell on the ground, and he worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Sometimes the most devoted of God's servants suffer in absolutely overwhelming ways one writer says we must never think that godliness will insulate us against pain love does not make us numb it makes us feel losses all the more we are wrong to think that submission means no tears, no breaking of the heart, no inward struggles, and no troubling questions. Job did not tear his clothes and shave his head merely out of custom. He tore his robe because his heart was torn to pieces. He cut his hair because all his hopes for his children were cut off. Can you imagine what it is like to bury all your children in one day? And sometimes the most devoted of God's servants suffer in overwhelming and in extraordinary ways. I was reading some time ago about Matthew Henry. And Matthew Henry was writing about his experience of the sudden death of his father, Philip. He says, I was very melancholy. That's the experience. And he adds, he says, what is this that God has done to us? The thing itself and the suddenness of it. By the thing itself, he means the the taking away of his father and the suddenness with which his father died. He says the thing itself and the suddenness of it are very affecting. The Lord calls my sins to remembrance this day that I have not profited by him that is by his dad. I have not profited by him while he was with us as I should have done. You and I have stood by the graves of those we loved, with profound sense of regret. He goes on in his diary, he writes, I, for my part, am full of confusion, and I am like a man astonished. That's how Jeremiah writes. These words in verses 22 to 24, they're not cold words the words spoken by a man who has suffered that's the context and i give you two lessons in light of it the first is to remember the lord remember the lord no matter what your circumstances no matter how hard they might be no matter how dark the days you must remember the lord and so you well we had the context read to us we had the suffering set before us and then we come to these verses 22 to 24 And we know he's remembered the Lord. Uh, The tone of the chapter uh, begins to adjust and to change somewhere in verses 16 to 21. And the change uh, seems to center on the Lord. It seems as if by the mere mention of the Lord, his attention is turned from suffering to the Savior. And I'm saying to you, always we must remember the Lord. Especially when it's dark, you must remember the Lord. And we must move from lament to the Lord. And our eyes must turn from our circumstances to our God. And that's what happened with Asaph in Psalm 73. See, he's struggling with with deep things, the kinds of things we struggle with. And he looks around and he sees... That the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. And he doesn't understand. And he begins to question. And he begins to say, well, now, what is this all about? And maybe I've washed my hands in innocency. Maybe it's all been pointless. And maybe my striving for righteousness and my seeking after God, it's all come to naught. Because, well, the result is that I'm suffering and the righteous are suffering. And the wicked ones who care nothing for God they're prospering and all is well with them. And they lay their heads on their pillows at night and they sleep well. And I agonize. And he says, then I turned and I looked and I remembered. And when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I began to understand. So I'm saying to you, you must remember the Lord and you mustn't. Push him out of the equation as you evaluate life and as you try to understand circumstances. Don't push him away. Don't keep him out of the equation. That is desperation and it's despair. Remember the Lord. And then, secondly, see the Lord. He's there. It's not just a matter of remembering a concept. But you see him. You see him in the circumstances. In the middle of all of this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I can speak, says Jeremiah, of the mercies of God. Right here in the midst of the flames. These mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so see the Lord. Right there. God, you see is not a distant God. He's not far away. He's not absent. But he's with us. And the psalmist understood this. And he says, even when the mountains are being carried into the midst of the sea, the Lord is my very present help. Paul's experience in 2 Timothy 4. Everybody's forsaken him. I wonder if you've had Christians forsake you I wonder if you've had friends turn their back on you Paul says they all ran away but the Lord stood with me so you see the Lord Paul's in prison and Paul's facing execution but he sees the Lord in this the Lord stood with me he's right there that was the experience of Joshua he enters the land Great trials ahead. Great challenges facing him. Oh, but God goes with him. He sees the Lord. It's Job's experience. Samson's experience in the midst of the Philistines. It's Jonah's experience in the belly of the great fish in the depths of discouragement and suffering the consequences of his disobedience. But the Lord is there. He cries out to the Lord from the belly of a fish. So we must remember the Lord and we must see the Lord in our circumstances. God is always there. He's right there with us. And even if you wanted to, and even if you tried, you couldn't get away from him. You know that from Psalm 139. And so pray for eyes to see the Lord. So there you have the context of faithfulness. Now the nature of it. Great is your faithfulness. This must be a wonderful attribute of God. And it is. What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to say that God is a faithful God? Well, it means these kinds of things. The word that is used here means uh, to remain in one place. It says of Moses' hands that his hands were steady. You know, sometimes, especially as we get old, I suppose, you know, your hands begin to tremble, or especially if you're nervous because you're speaking to a group of women, you know. But Moses' hand, oh, steady like a rock. That's what God's like. God is in one place. He's fixed and stable. We need something fixed and stable. You've had someone fixed and stable, but she only lasted for 70 years. Everyone wants to say, 70 years. 70 years is nothing. In God's economy and in God's time, God is fixed and steady and stable he can be counted upon this means truthfulness honesty trustworthiness that's who our god, god who our god is god is faithful true to his word and every statement can be trusted as every promise can be depended upon Joshua 21:45, "Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed. All came to pass. That's our God. That's what He does. That's what He's like. He's faithful. Psalm 119 verse 90 says, "Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides." 1 Corinthians 1 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, says God, God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. This isn't surprising to you, is it? You know what this means. But think about what it means. God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he said and fulfill what he has promised. You know the promises in the Bible. You know the ones that apply to you and I. And God will stand by them. Another writer says, God's faithfulness is a perfection by which he is true to his word and to all his covenant engagements. And so, as these people by the thousands are being taken to Babylon, has it all come crashing down? I mean, the promises, God's commitment to send a Messiah, has that all come crashing down? Is it all destroyed? Is there now no hope? Are we like all the rest, without hope and without God in the world? And Jeremiah says, absolutely not. God is faithful. Let's think about this faithfulness. And let me tell you that this is sovereign faithfulness. This is the faithfulness of a God who is in complete control of the situation. This is a God who rules over everything. If you read this chapter, what you'll find is the repetition of the word he. So Jeremiah understands that God is sovereign even here, even on this day. When all around is crumbling and everything's crashing to the ground... He knows that God's in control because what you see is this. Verse 10, for instance. He is a bear lying in wait for me. He turned aside my steps. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become a laughingstock, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel, and so on and so on. Who's ultimately in control in these devastating circumstances? Jeremiah says, God. It's not them. It's God. They haven't done this. Well, yes, they have, but behind them, it's God. In real control is God. Who's the sovereign? It's God. Who sits on the throne still, even on these days? It's God. And for a moment, your throne was vacant. And that grieves you. And then your throne is filled again, and maybe that doesn't comfort you. But that throne never changes. That king always reigns. Your God. He's always God. He's the faithful God. He's sovereign. He's in control. And that's the perspective that sustained Job. It's not these Sabaeans. And it's not the fire. And it's not the wind. And it's not the Chaldeans. Now the Lord has taken away. He gave. And he took away. And so that's what Job understands. He understands the faithful God is a sovereign God. Habakkuk understood this and he knows that it's God who's raising up the Chaldeans and everyone else would say oh no, it's for this and this and this reason they have become a great empire no, he says that's God God's done this a sovereign God who's the faithful God and David understands this and Shimei just rains curses upon him David says oh it's the Lord oh he's he's saying these things and he bears the responsibility he'll have to answer to God for this but you know I know it's the Lord and so when Ellen Cameron saw the head and the hands of his son you know the story I'm sure he says it's the Lord and in my own life our church split a little over a year ago, and frankly, our whole world as a family just turned upside down. Devastated. And we have to say, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And whatever you're going through, it's the Lord. He's the sovereign God. You see, this is the faithfulness of a God who reigns over all, and nothing happens in your life and mine but that He hasn't ordained it. And you see, the comfort of this affirmation that God is faithful, the comfort of that is based upon the fact that this God is sovereign. It's wonderful to read that God is working out all things for our good. That's a great promise. But it means nothing if Ephesians 1.11 isn't also true. Romans 8.28 is great, but he, Ephesians 1.11, where it says that God is working out all things after the counsel of his will. If that's not true, then we're in trouble with Romans 8.28. But he can do this because he can do that. And he rules and reigns over everything. And that's why he can look after us. And everything that happens is according to his will. That's why he can ensure that everything that happens to you is for your good. So how great is it to have a sovereign God and a faithful God? So when Paul, in Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 7 to 10, says, I have a thorn in the flesh, but God said it's all right because his grace is sufficient. Yeah, it is. So this is sovereign faithfulness. This is gracious faithfulness. The God who is faithful is not only sovereign, but he's full of grace. He's full of grace. Jeremiah talks about the steadfast love of the Lord. He talks about this loving kindness. This is grace, and this is favor. This is the self-forgetting love of God. And we see then that even in these dark days during which Jeremiah lives, God has in mind that which ultimately is for their good and for the good of all those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. Jeremiah talks about compassion. This is God's sympathetic love towards the destitute. Psalm 103 says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. You see, yours is not a cold and a dark and a harsh world. I hope you understand that believers see the world that way. This is a terrifying world. They talk about angst. They talk about being in a universe that doesn't care about them. Richard Dawkins says, you know, he says, you people struggle with why suffering happens. He says, listen, that question shouldn't even arise. The universe doesn't care about you. These things just happen and no one cares. So just grow up. That's how, they, that's how they see the world. And it's terrifying for them. Your world is not that world. You have a God who loves you. Jeremiah in these days can talk about love. Can talk about compassion. Compassion can talk about the fact that God is faithful to his people and that because he loves them. It's extraordinary. And so they're going to be taken to Babylon, they're being taken away captivity, but God will bring them back. He's faithful. He will settle them in the land. He's faithful. He will reestablish them because he's faithful. And then from them, he will bring Messiah because he's faithful to his promises. And that Messiah will save them, not from Egypt and not from Babylon, but from sin and destruction and death and hell because God is faithful and he loves them and he loves you. And so, yes, you have a, a faithful God and he's sovereign. And he is loving and gracious, and he's constant. This is constant faithfulness because he never fails, and he never forsakes, and he's always there, and he always supplies, and every day, and every hour of every day. Because you know, life changes by the hour, and you can be just on top of the world right now, and then you get a phone call. He's faithful every hour. And every minute. And so for these people, Jeremiah says, you need to remember God is faithful. So, you know, God will provide for them and they will be thankful then for every crust of bread because they know it comes from his hand. They'll be grateful for every drop of water and they'll be grateful for every night of shelter because God's always faithful, even in the darkest of days. And so today, for you, God's going to provide. He's going to provide, well, we'd rather not have this, but He'll provide the trials that you need to grow. He doesn't just provide the sweet things, He provides some of the bitter things so that you'll be better. He'll provide that, and He'll provide the moral strength so that you'll resist temptation. He'll provide the faith that you need to cling to Him when everything's collapsing. He'll give you the faith you need to see in the dark. He'll always provide for you. Every day his faithfulness proves itself and he proves himself to be all we need. Even when you even when you get a little long in the tooth. Uh, Jeremy, I I thought I was going to go that way and then I stepped up here and I thought, oh my, I hope I make it. (laughs) You you wondered too. (laughs) Okay. Because you know, things have progressed in terms of time. And, you know, I'm, I'm at the latter part of my life and ministry. And, um, yeah. sometimes I suppose you think as you get older, things are going to get easier. <laughs> uh-uh. No, sir. Um... And then towards the end of my life and ministry, we just had one of the greatest trials of our lives. Things, we just got shattered. And, uh, but you know what? God is still faithful. Like he's, he's been extraordinary. And he's been faithful to us through some of the darkest days of our lives. Always faithful. Well, the psalmist says, "His faithfulness endures to all generations." That's why we're not consumed, you know. Like, uh, we're like those three friends in the furnace, and it's hot. But uh, there's someone with you. He's faithful. That's our God. He's the sovereign, gracious, constant God. Thirdly, the responses. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to the, the faithfulness of our God? Well, first of all, prostration. To be prostrate, to bow before the Lord. To submit to the Lord. To say your will and not mine. Like Job. So remember what happened. And then remember what he said. It's absolutely a. I I mean, he's a real man. This actually happened. His children were taken away just like that cannot imagine what that's like and never 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 say, well, you know, he got more. Like how sickly cold is that? No, on that day when the wound is gaping, he says, "Blessed be the name of the Lord." and the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away and he didn't sin against God. That's astounding. When my slightest comfort is removed, I want to complain. I mean, his children were taken and he never sinned against God. It's astounding. That's submission. My God is faithful, so I will submit to him. You see, verses 25... The twenty-seven. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. It's good. The first two chapters of Lamentations, each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. (coughs) Excuse me, this chapter is three times longer than those and and Every three verses begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, in this section, each verse begins with the same letter, but more than that, each verse begins with the same word. Good is the Lord. It's good to wait. Good to bear the yoke. I'm saying to you, that's extraordinary submission. That's a statement of submission. That's everything's been taken. It's all being stripped away. The mountains are being carried into the midst of the sea. That's what's happening. And he says, good is the Lord. It's good to bear the yoke. It's good to wait on the Lord. It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him at submission. My daughter uh, was... Many years, single woman, and it was hard. And what impressed me so much about her piety was that she did this. She says, oh, I want this. But the Lord is good. And that relationship wasn't an idol where, you know, I'll do whatever I need to do to get that. But it was God is faithful to all his promises. So I will submit to him and I will live for the glory of God and I will seek first the kingdom of God. So I'm saying that this, you know, if if you sing later, great is thy faithfulness, understand this, that it means that you're submitting to God. It means that you believe God is faithful to all his promises, then you're going to live your life that way, submitting to his will, even when that will is is hard and painful and it crosses your designs. You submit. That's the first lesson. The second is perspective. Perspective we tend to think that if we, if we suffer, we don't deserve it. I remember a year, some years ago I was in the ministry and, and things were going badly, you know. They were heading south, fast. And um, we got into the car, Heather and I, and She and before I did, I, I said to her, I don't get this. Because all this is happening and and I'm right. <laughs> and I was. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. Why should I be suffering? Because I'm right about this. Like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm biblical. I mean, I've, I've been to th- seminary, you know. I know everything. And so I, I know what's right, and I'm doing it. So why is this? We tend to think that things should go well. And they don't. And Jeremiah says, it's of the Lord's mercy that we're not consumed. And the, you see, implied is the fact that we, we deserve not the least of these blessings. We don't deserve blessing. I mean, you deserve hell. You deserve to suffer forever in the fires of hell. You deserve to be in a place where every vestige of the goodness of God is cut off from you, and you deserve that forever. That's what you deserve. So don't call on God for justice. You don't need justice. You don't say to God, "This isn't right," or "This isn't fair." You don't want fair. I mean, you want grace. You want mercy. You want God to treat you not as you deserve, but as he is according to his pleasure. That's what you want. You want, you want his mercy. And that's what Jeremiah delights in here, and that's what he's so thankful for. He's not, he's not saying, Lord, we don't deserve to have our city torn to the ground. We, no, it's through his mercy we're not consumed. He'll keep us going. He'll bring us back. He will set us up, and he will bring the sun So let's maintain some perspective. Remember who we are. And remember his grace. Thirdly, praise. Praise. So so Job worshipped. And Jeremiah praised. In the middle of this, Jeremiah says, great is your faithfulness. I, I don't think it's great is your faithfulness. He's pretty thrilled about this. This is a thrilling affirmation. This is a glorious statement. This gives you wings. This makes you soar. I mean, great is the faithfulness of God even today. So we praise God. Thomas Manton said, Murmuring is an anti providence, a renouncing of God's sovereignty. As if we could correct his, as if we could correct His ways and do better and fitter for the government of the world, no, we ought to praise God. And we praise Him first because of who He is. So who is the God you serve today? Psalm 89 verse three says, "O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you." Isaiah 11:5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That's Messianic. That's your Lord Jesus. He's faithful. Faithfulness is of the very nature of your God. That's just who he is. That's not putting on a persona for the time being. That's just who God is. Sometimes we say, you know, you see someone acting a particular way and and you're surprised and you say, Oh, that's not like him. But God never acts in a way that is not like him. He's always like himself. And like himself means faithful. And because he's immutable, he'll never change. He's always, but always going to be faithful to you. That deserves praise. I know my congregation, I'm a part of, we're kind of, you know, buttoned up. And and I know I'm in England, so I'm not going to get too emotional. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I haven't offended you just before the Q&A. But, but my goodness, this should excite you. That God, your God, is faithful. We praise him for who he is and we praise him for what he does. You see in verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. God promised that he would do this and he did it. The Lord gives himself, undivided, the I am that I am, to every individual who believes in him. Can mortal man, sinful man, ask for more? God gives himself to you. If you're a Christian, God gives himself to you. He gives you so much more, but he gives himself to you. If you're not a Christian, when you believe in Jesus, when you trust the Lord, when you become a Christian, God gives himself to you. I mean, think about this. He gives himself to you. He's given you life. He's given you breath. He's given you a roof over your head and food on your table. He's given you people who love you. He's given you a multitude of blessings. And it all fades into nothing because he gives himself to you. He gives himself to you. He gives himself to you. You can sing. If if you're a Christian, you can sing, I am his, he's mine. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. My portion forever. And we sing then. And we will. Till the end of our days. I am his. And he is mine. And that. Deserves praise. And we praise him for who he is. And we praise him. For what he does. And the last thing. Is. In terms of. Our response to this is prayer. <clears throat> is prayer. You don't go to someone who's thoroughly undependable. I don't know if you know people like that, they just they cannot be trusted. The only thing you can trust them to do is to not follow through. You don't go to people like that and ask them for help. George Mueller says, prove the faithfulness of God by carrying your every want to Him taking your every need to the throne of grace. If you have a faithful God, my goodness, you should pray. And in the the daytime of your prosperity and in the nighttime of your affliction, you call on him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how good you are, how glorious you are. How thankful we are and how we pray for grace that we might be men and women who believe in the truthfulness, the faithfulness of our God and who then live in light of it. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.